0: Back in the year 1971, our denomination did a study of baptism and issued a report, and part of that report dealt with the baptism of infants and young children, and it read in part, when parents or guardians are considering having their infants baptized, the pastor and session should make it clear that baptism does not guarantee the salvation of the child. Baptism is in no sense to be sought out of fear that an unbaptized child will somehow be cut off from heaven. Now, it may surprise you that our forebear, John Calvin, though strongly endorsing infant baptism, also taught that baptism is not a requirement for salvation. Scriptural support for that view is from Luke's account of Jesus' crucifixion, when Jesus promised the repentant thief on an adjoining cross, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The criminal had already expressed confidence in Jesus and requested, remember me when you come in your kingly power. So while baptism is important and normative, God may save without that sign of Christ's love and grace. This means that our Reformed tradition, our Presbyterian tradition, does not agree with our Anabaptist Christian friends who think that baptism is inappropriate for infants and young children, those who are too young to confess their faith in Christ. And on the other hand, the majority of Christians worldwide who practice infant baptism, uh, including our Roman Catholic sisters and brothers, for them, baptism is necessary for salvation and they view baptism as something through which God acts automatically to bestow all of Christ's saving benefits, including cleansing from sin, the gifts of faith and the Holy Spirit, the call to service, and the promise of eternal life to both infants or the recipients of baptism or believing adults. Now, as Presbyterian or Reformed Christians, our view is different than both our Christian friends who are either Anabaptists, that is, they oppose infant baptism, or Roman Catholic. Why, then, do we baptize infants, and what do we think it signifies? In this sermon, I want to make the case, biblically and theologically, for infant baptism by offering three major reasons and the very first has to do with today's scripture text so let me introduce that while in the city of philippi paul healed a demon-possessed slave girl who had formerly made her master lots of money by telling fortunes however when the unclean spirit departed with paul's exorcism so did her ability to tell fortunes Therefore, her master was angry with Paul and pressured local magistrates to arrest Paul and his colleague Silas, beat them with rods, and throw them in jail overnight. And so that's the context for our reading today from Acts chapter 16, verses 25 through 34, as Patrice Freire reads for us.
1: Today's scripture reading comes from Acts Chapter 16, verses 25 through 34 in the New Revised Standard Version of our Bible. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was an earthquake so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open he drew his sword and was about to kill himself since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice do not harm yourself for we are all here. The jailer called for lights and rushing in he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and said sirs What must I do to be saved they answered believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved you and your household they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house at the same hour of the night he took them and washed their wounds then he and his entire family were baptized without delay he brought them up into the house And set food before them and he and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. Praise be to God for this is the word of the Lord. Amen.
0: So the first reason for baptizing infants is that according to the New Testament infant baptism was likely practiced by the early church. The evidence for that practice of infant baptism is admittedly circumstantial, and yet it's significant. In his first letter to the church at Corinth, Paul mentions he baptized the household of Stephanus. Additionally, in Luke's narrative, in the Acts of the Apostles, he mentions three additional household baptisms performed by the Apostle Paul, and they include a Gentile businesswoman in Philippi named Lydia and her household, told earlier in Acts chapter 16, and later in, the, in chapter 18 of the Acts, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue in Corinth, converts along with his whole household. But the account you just heard was about the Philippian jailer and his household from Acts chapter 16. Now the Greek word translated household in the New Testament is oikos, and it included all who lived in the home servants, children, and other relatives and dependents. New Testament scholar Joachim Jeremias comments, this does not mean to say that in every particular case in which a baptism of a whole household is mentioned, that small children were actually present. But it does mean that Paul and Luke could under no circumstances have applied the oikos formula if they had wished to say that only adults had been baptized. So today's text provides an instructive example of well, as well of what happened when the head of household changed the family's religion. Following a great earthquake, the jailer of the prison asks Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do, that's singular, that I, singular, may be saved. And they said, Believe, in the singular, on the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved, you and your household. Then it says, They spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And at the same hour of the night he took them and washed their wounds. Then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into the house and set food before them, and he and his household, entire household, rejoiced that he singularly had come to faith in God. So, jeremias comments about that passage. He says, the conversion of the father of the household implies the salvation of the household and is the cause for the joy of the members of the household. Now, in our culture, friends, of course, the decision to become a Christian is viewed in individualistic terms, in our very individualistic uh, culture and thinking. However, in first century Middle Eastern culture, conversion was not always an individual decision. Whole families, or even whole tribes of peoples, often converted with the tribal chief or the head of family. What all this means is that it is likely that at least some infants and small children were included in the four New Testament examples we have of household baptisms. So that's the first thing I want to say, that it's likely that the early church did practice infant baptism itself in view of these four specifically mentioned episodes of household baptism. The second reason why, why infant baptism makes sense in our Reformed or Presbyterian tradition is that it beautifully illustrates the good news, the gospel truth of God's prevenient grace for us in Christ. Paul writes at Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and 8, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, while we were still helpless like an infant, Christ didn't demand our reform and repentance and obedience before offering his life to redeem and forgive us. In other words, faith and obedience are our response, the designed ideal response to God's saving act in Christ but not its precondition. Then in response to God's grace in Christ's death and resurrection, then we are invited to trust in and obediently follow him. For believers, the typical pattern is hearing the gospel, repenting, embracing Christ by faith, receiving the Holy Spirit, and then undergoing baptism as a sign of those realities. However, for infants and young children who cannot understand the gospel, infant baptism points to God's grace for us in Christ and his sacrificial death for us, which precedes our response of repentance, faith, and Christian service. Now, some of our Christian sisters and brothers are active in churches that reject infant baptism, and they're labeled theologically Anabaptist churches. Instead, they practice the dedication of children in place of infant baptism. Their emphasis in dedicating infants is on our response to the gospel, not God's prior saving act in Christ. And while baptism is both God's act and our response, what God has done for us in and through Christ is more important than what we do in response. Therefore, the focus of infant baptism in our tradition, in our church, is on the grace of Christ, on what God in Christ has done for us, which we could not do for ourselves. Now, our response isn't trivial, but it's a distant second when compared with God's saving acts in Jesus. So baptism illustrates God's provenient grace for us in Christ that it's given us prior to our response of repentance and faith. It's also likely it was practiced in the early church. And a third reason for embracing the practice of infant baptism is that it's related to the Jewish practice of the circumcision of male infants. In his letter to the church in Colossae, Paul describes baptism, in fact, as spiritual circumcision, directly linking, directly joining circumcision with baptism. And as we read earlier from the Heidelberg Catechism, we believe that while circumcision was the sign of the Old Covenant and entry into the Old Covenant family, baptism replaced it as the sign of entry into the New Covenant. So in Paul's time, or Jesus' time, or even prior to that, those eight-day-old male infants who were being circumcised could not understand anything about God, but they were circumcised with the hope that they would become people of faith, i.e. those circumcised in heart as well as in the flesh. Now today, parents who present their infants for baptism come with similar hopes, that in time the baptized child will confirm the faith-filled promises made on his or her behalf by parents years earlier, and then later embracing Christ for him or herself, confirming those baptismal promises or vows. And just as infants were circumcised only once, (laughs) as they first entered the covenant community for obvious reasons, so we believe that we can be born again only once, and that baptism should be received just once whether as an infant or as a believer so today christian parents seek the assurance of god's blessing for their children that they're welcomed into god's new covenant family through jesus christ and yet at such a younger young age as they cannot yet understand a single word of the christian gospel so we yearn to know as believing parents that god's love and grace in christ are offered not only to us but to our children even before they can understand it and respond to Jesus themselves the baptism of infants provides that promise and that assurance Peter's words at Pentecost at, at the end of his sermon remind us that God's covenant promise is for you for your children for all who are far away everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him Well, all of this still leaves a critical question unanswered. Our Reformed tradition rejects the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper as automatic dispensers of Christ's saving grace, apart from personal faith. How then do we deal with the faith requirement when we baptize infants? John Calvin writes that infants are baptized toward faith rather than into it. As he expressed it, children are baptized for future repentance and faith. So as Reformed Christians, Presbyterians, in our practice of infant baptism, we ask parents about their own faith and their desire that their son or daughter comes to know Jesus. We baptize with the hope that the young child will come to know Christ personally and at a later age will confirm the baptismal vows made on his or her behalf years earlier by parents. For us, the faith of the congregation, as well as parents, is also critically important. So we ask the whole gathered congregation in worship, will you promise to guide and nurture this child by word and deed, with love and prayer, encouraging him or her to know and follow Jesus Christ? Friends, infant baptism is the beginning of a journey that we pray will end with the blossoming of a vital personal faith in Jesus Christ. And as the the church, as the New Covenant community uh, seeks to play a supporting role in assisting parents with the Christian nurture of their children. And that's the reason why Darcy Fluitt, our Director of Children's Ministries, and her assistant, Sue T. Lim, along with a group of adult volunteers, lead our children's ministries and it's why Corey Myers, our director of youth ministries and volunteer youth workers lead our youth ministries, teaching and nurturing our children and youth in the faith all the way from infancy through high school. Now at the recent celebration of uh, Corey's 20 years of ministry among us as our director of youth ministries, Lucy Gerhardt shared the story of how Corey's association with our church began when he was just a middle schooler and lived in the neighborhood, just a couple blocks from our church facility. Mary Rogers phoned to ask Corey's mother, if he could attend youth group with her son Chad. And so friends, thanks largely to this church's youth ministry, Chad is now a Presbyterian pastor, and Corey is our long-serving director of youth ministries. In my own life, I was encouraged in my faith by three couples who were involved for decades in both children and youth ministry at First Presbyterian Church in Santa Cruz. Bob and Louise Hope, Al and Iris Hansen, and Bob and Ann Carl not only taught, but model the faith for me. I wouldn't be here today as a pastor without their influence and their love. So the next time you are asked to serve in some role in children's ministry, like maybe be a church school teacher or vacation Bible school worker, or in youth ministry, some way working in this, a team of people that work with Corey, please prayerfully consider it. Who knows who you might influence to faithfully embrace and follow the Lord Jesus. May God lead us as a congregation in nurturing the children of our church family so that those we baptize and others as well will come to love, trust, and serve Jesus Christ. Amen.